Welcome, fellow anglers, to the Working Class Fishing Podcast, a place for all anglers, amateur or expert, to share their stories and learn about fishing. Join your hosts, John and Brian, each episode as they debunk the perceived inaccessibility to fishing, break down the barriers of any and all angling methods, and hear stories from other anglers and their own journeys with fishing. Now, let's get this show started. Welcome back to another episode of the Working Class Fishing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brian, and this podcast is brought to you by CD Fishing USA, Naughty Tackle Sure Cure, Anatomist Fly Co., Lid Rig, Angry Rooster Fly Company, and 317 Flies. Make sure you go out and check out all those sponsors. Here's the other host, John, to introduce our special guest of the hour tonight. Everybody, welcome back to Working Class Fishing. Thanks for tuning in to another week. And this week's pretty awesome. Uh, I get to sit down and talk with one of my buddies, and it is none other than Mr. Alan Root. Alan, dude, thanks so much for coming on, brother. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Dude, so seeing you at the Mesquite show, that was absolutely, that was just awesome. Uh, it yeah. was really great to meet you and see you work. Yeah, it was. And um, we'll see each other. I don't know when this is coming up. We'll see each other again next week at Salbug, I think, right? Yeah, Salbug, dude. Yeah, I'm stoked yeah. for that too. <laughs> yeah. Salbug's great. Like if you're a fly tire and you don't go to that one, you're really missing out. And so what I've heard is it's more of a fly tying centric show. That's it, really. There's a couple of guys, you know, there's a couple of booths, like there's a guy selling this or that, or like a like five or six people selling stuff. And then there's, I don't know, 80 to 100, I'm estimating the number, fly tires that sit in there and just tie flies. And we're not allowed to sell them. Like there's nobody there trying to sell their flies. There's nobody there doing anything like that. It's just, hey, this is how I tie this. And you can, if you're there, you know, as a, a tire, you're you're on for either the, the morning shift or the evening shift. And then you get the other one off. So you can go walk around and watch everybody else tie. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm super stoked. Are you are you tying all all four days three days it's three days three right? days yeah uh yeah the first day i'm the featured tire up front on the camera thing and then that afternoon i had signed up for a deer hair class just because why not learn somebody else's way of doing deer hair and uh that person just canceled he had a, a family issue and i got an email today saying that they're i think uh, steve silverio steve. from uh Part, he used to be with Partridge. I don't know who he's with now in uh, Regal. He's going to do it now. That'll be interesting to see him. I thought, it, here. I thought it was uh, Steve Modernato. Oh, maybe it was Steve Modernato. I thought it was yeah. Steve. Yeah, I don't know which one it is. Anyway, somebody's Steve. doing here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the guy from Regal. Uh, you know what? Steve ties. They both tie in Regal, don't they? I think so. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and then uh, the next two days, I'm tying the whole time. Um, short of if Emily needs any help at her booth, I'll help her out because I have a strange feeling she's going to need some assistance. <laughs> you know, Alan. Uh, so we know you. Well, yes, I, I know you, and this Brian's getting to know you. But, dude, uh, tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself, dude. Uh, Alan Roop. I run and own uh, Fly on the Water. It's 
custom fly tying. It's really what I do. I do fly tying lessons as well, uh, some casting instruction. Um, but it's the, the custom tying that I do that's really my forte. So I'm not a, a high production tire. There's a lot of people out there doing, you know, many thousands of flies, a, you know, every year. That's not me. Um, I do, you know, super high quality stuff. Not that those guys aren't doing high quality, but um, I'm also doing, you know, I do a lot of flies for people going over to the Seychelles for Jeets and Bonefish over there. Bonefish in, you know, the Bahamas, uh, Yucatan, Belize, that area, snook flies. Um, I have some guys that, that want uh, trout flies for when they go to uh, Europe, particularly for the mayfly hatches in the spring. Their, their mayfly hatches over there are, are, are impressive, even on U.S. standards. They have one uh, ephemerella Danica that, that's quite popular and you know, a big comparison is a really good imitation for it. Um, and then, you know, so a lot of destination tying and custom tying, but that's that's what I do. Uh, it's, this is my third time selling flies. I did it in high school. And I did it right after college. And, uh, you know, life happens. You know, college got in the way the first time. Then life happened. You know, when you're 24, other things become more important than trying to make some money selling flies. And uh, this time I'm uh, five years into it now, or almost five years, I'm a couple months away from five years, so. Dude, congratulations. I, I say Thanks. congratulations, because I know that's that's gotta be a lot of work. And uh, yeah. dude, so I've got a question, because I'm gonna forget in the middle of all this that mm -hmm. I actually thought to ask you. So, I've tied it two shows now, right? Yeah. And um, what are some things that isn't necessarily like a material? Of course, you need your vice and all this stuff. But what are some things that you found going to all these shows as a tire? What are some things you really need to bring with you? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, hmm. Because something I, I thought of, because I do a lot of bucktails, like a uh, lint roller. I really need a lint roller to keep my area kind of tidy. Uh, even with my little waste basket, I still get yeah. tail and stuff everywhere. Yeah. Um, so along the same lines, I when I'm at a show and when I'm at home here doing a lot of deer hair, like if I'm doing something like a, you know, a waking minnow or something, I'll uh, I'll wear an apron to keep the deer hair off of me but at the show I'll do the same thing because you're wearing nice clothes you know you're not wearing you know crappy stuff and all the glues and adhesive and the hair and all that stuff you don't want that getting over your your good stuff so I wear an apron that's one thing um the other thing I would say is um I always try to bring stuff that's I don't want to say shareable but that other people might have forgotten or something so like I don't bring a bobbin. I always bring two or three. I can always go buy one if I break one, but what if somebody's there and they don't, you know, they don't, well, hey, if you don't need to, if I don't need to go buy a bobbin, then here, you don't either. Like I can share, I can give you a bobbin or I can give you, I always bring four or five pairs of scissors because the, you know, the first time you drop scissors, they're done. Like they're done. So especially on those concrete floors, you know? 
Um, so I always bring that. Um, and then whatever adhesives I'm bringing, I always bring two. Same reason. What if the jar breaks in the way? What if it leaks on the way? Um, so those would be the things I would say. The only other thing is don't forget your phone charging cable and stuff. You'd be <laughs> amazed how many times people are like, can I borrow your charger? Sorry. Because <laughs> they didn't think to bring theirs. Right? So um, a light. Uh, something I realized too is, you know, I, I sit here with this, this bright light in my face all the time. Um, I have one too. Yeah. So I showed up and instantly I was, uh, I was in the dark, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was, uh, I was, uh, I needed, I was like, damn, I really wish I had my light. So hairline has a really good product for that. Um, it's the same as this giraffe light. So this is all bendable, right? They have one. I they call it their giraffe light or something. I can send you the link later, but it comes with a C clamp because I have a big like 10 pound base for this one that I've had for 30 years. And they make, and I just put a halogen spot bulb in there instead of the incandescent and it's super bright white. It's only about that big, but it's, it's exactly where you need it every time. And it's white. Um, but that's what I bring to the shows now because I used to travel with this and I didn't, I was so worried about breaking it because I called the number on it, couldn't get it anymore. Um, I was just talking to Tracy Harlan one day going, man, I wish there was a good travel light. You know, I have this thing. And he goes, we sell those. We bought that company. I'm like, what? And I immediately <laughs> called it. I said, great, here's the order. I have one sitting in the closet. It's what I travel with now. Awesome. You'll see it at Salvo. It's fantastic. So how, Brian, I'm sorry, you probably got questions. Uh, go ahead, John. I was just going to say, dude, so how did you come about getting into fishing and then uh, possibly know, add on into that? Like, how, why, why fly fishing? Out of all the fishing in the world, why did you end up doing fly? Uh, the fishing thing was just, my dad took me fishing as a young kid. And when I say young, I mean, I don't know if it was five or six, but it was somewhere around, you know, there and way before I was eight. How's that? Um, and, it, you know, I started with a, a cane pole and that little wooden bobber that, you know, you you put your line on the one side and if it you, the weight didn't pull it under, it wouldn't stand up. So you knew, it, you know, oh, it's laying on the bottom, right? Your little worm chunk was laying on the bottom. Um, I don't know what the name of that bother is, but that's what we used as a kid. Um, and I'm pretty sure we got the cane pole from you know, some mediocre store. I don't remember what it was, but uh, that's how I got into fishing. Um, and then how I got into fly fishing was back in the day, there was a TV show on uh, ESPN. They used, ESPN used to do this Saturday morning. They had the ESPN outdoors. It was always hunting and fishing. It was mostly fishing. Um, and there was one called Fly Fishing the World with John Barrett. Now, mind you, I'm 11 at the time or whatever it is, roughly speaking. And he has people on like Michael Keaton, who at the time was Batman, right? No. And who was still a lifelong fly fisherman, avid. He had Huey Lewis, who at the time was Huey Lewis in the news was huge. Again, a lifelong angler still to this day. Um, Liam Neeson, 
uh, Tom Brokaw, Richard Mall, who was that big bald guy from Night Court, guy who was like six seven, six eight, or whatever. He was <laughs> had him on, and you would take these people to wonderful destinations, whether it was the Bahamas or Christmas Island or New Zealand or the Rockies or wherever, Chile. And it was just stunning watching that most of them had never fly fished before. Um, and I was like, I'd been, you know, by that point I had moved up to spinning rods and bait casting rods. And uh, I was just like, you know what, I want to try that. And luckily my parents, you know, were willing to, to feed me whatever I wanted to try within reason, you know. I remember we went out and they got me the, uh, for my birthday, the Cortland 444 starter kit with the Royal Crown 2 reel. I had that thing for all through high school and the beginning part of college. Do you, was it a, did you just outgrow it or was there a, oh, I a broke it. Timely, uh, uh, untimely demise? I was afraid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did a, a roll cast in the boat and caught the cleat. Oh shit. And that power stroke <laughs> didn't like the cleat for some reason. <laughs> yeah. That snapped it real quick. So what are you going to do? Things dude, like I, happens. <laughs> dude, I back cast into a stop sign. Um, <laughs> I the tell line the story, or the rod tip? The line. The oh. line. I was, uh, I was really, I was casting really low. Um, to avoid some uh, overhanging trees. Yeah. And uh, dude, I just came back and I was like, man, that loaded really good. And then I stroke forward and I rip on it to haul it and my rod just shatters. It sounds <laughs> like a crack, doesn't it? Like it, yeah. there's a crack to it that's like, you'll never forget it from the first time you hear it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know that somebody can be halfway, you know, half a mile down the road, like, I know it just happened. I know that sound. <laughs> more like yeah. a boom you know you get that, yeah. that that you know that that load and it goes boom yeah it, 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 you know i find it interesting that you you bring up the uh the old shows from mm -hmm. from like espn or there was like tnn and all those types of things yep. and you know Absolutely. john john and i often talk about like you know what what influences people to go fishing obviously we have parents we have people in our life but what i always find to be kind of the common factor is is that when we started seeing it in media, that's what really got us fascinated. And you're talking about, you know, 1988, 1989, 1990, these, yep. these major actors, people that were household figures that were out fishing, but they were also out fly fishing. And, and that being one of the things that draws you into that, you know, you know, a lot of times when people make the popular reference to fly fishing, it automatically goes back to, oh, I saw a river runs through it. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, every, everybody's 10 and two with a metronome out in the front yard. And then they grew up to be Brad Pitt and got drunk and killed outside a bar. Right. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah. not, that's like, that's like, I just wish I was as good looking as Brad. That's all I want from that movie. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, <laughs> I'll take his I, I, I think, I think 50% of the audience were women there to see Brad Pitt and the other 50% were all like fly anglers, like to critique everything that was going on in the thing, you know, because you always hear about like, oh, the casting was horrible and you don't do that, you know, yeah. but it was whatever you know it, it got a lot of people interested but uh i i want to say uh some of our friends actually worked on that show i i i, I don't want to say who they are out loud but uh because i'm not sure if it was that show exactly but it's it just seems to ring a bell but 
that is a highly influential show in that. And, you know, out of all that, though, what what species really got you going on the fly when you watched that show and you saw what you had available? What species was it that was like, I want to take the fly rod and I want to catch that? Oh, I, as a kid, I was a panfish fisherman. Bluegill and crappie were the the main quarry. And then for the magic hours, you know, morning and night, if if we were out at dawn, then I would bass fish. If we were there, at, you know, at dusk, I would I'd pick up the the bass rod. Um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, otherwise I was throwing. Started off with shad darts, then we, you know, then soft plastics came around, and we had those little, the the first ones were the gets it tubes. Gets it was the brand name. <clears throat> um, you know, we used those on thirty second ounce jig heads and ultralight rods for crappie and bluegill. Um, I grew up in Virginia. So that's where I, and we had a campsite on a lake down on the Virginia, North Carolina border called Lake Gaston. So that's where I spent my childhood basically fishing was there or the upper Potomac. Um, that was the, the main two places. And then the upper Potomac is a smallmouth fishery. So, but I would, I took that, that same tack with my fly rod. I would, I would buy bluegill poppers. You know, whether it was the pecs and all of the ones I'd get at the gas stations for, you know, whatever they were. I don't even remember a, a dollar a pop or whatever they were. I have no idea, but they were crap. I do remember that. <laughs> they would fall apart mid-cast sometimes on me. Um, but that's, you know, and I, and, and my dad couldn't understand how I was loving catching three-inch bluegill. Because <laughs> in August, when it's 95 degrees in North Carolina, nothing's eating on the surface but i could throw that up and if as long as i got it into water that was less than a foot deep that's where the three inch bluegill lived because everywhere else they were bait mm -hmm. right so and i would love it i could catch 50 fish in an afternoon where he would he would catch 10 nice crappie and 10 nice bluegill but i would catch 50 babies and love it so being being that you were living in virginia and you mentioned the upper potomac and uh, lower did did you ever fish the lower Potomac, like going out towards Chesapeake? And I fished all of that. Yeah, I fished the 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 Potomac for bass around DC, quote unquote, and then I fished the lower Potomac where the mouth of it is, uh, all the way out and into the Chesapeake Bay as well. Um, as a kid, you know, stripers, blues, stripers weren't very prominent when I was a kid. That's back when they were still a closed season for them. It was just starting to open up when I was getting old enough to start doing it, but then I went to college, right? I went to college in 94. So, okay. um, so I wasn't well, there for the good years, really. Yeah. Uh, did you ever go after the shad in, in the Potomac? Uh, I didn't there. I've gone for shad up in New England. I went to school in Providence. So okay. I went for shad up there and I think it was, yeah, the Narrows River. Um, and I caught a couple... I caught a couple over in the Shad Factory pond in the, the Palmer River, and, and they they literally are like baby tarpon. They just jump everywhere. They're just yeah. spastic little things on a fly rod. They're crazy. They're, we have them here in the West also. And yeah. I'm, I'm just making kind of an, a little bit of an assimilation. We have bass and everything else, but I, I love panfish on the fly rod for the same reason that you said that. And yeah. I, you know, the, it, it doesn't matter what size it is when you're catching it on the fly rod, they just fight, you know, they go sideways and 
drag you through the weeds and you know yeah. and even their takes can be challenging though even though they're so aggressive it's listen to, you know that snap and and you're like dude you know this thing really took that thing hard you know uh but the shatter is something that we always find a lot of fun in may and june you know and and so yeah. i i always have to ask that because i believe you're the first angler we've had that's actually spoke of fishing the Potomac in, in that context of like going out into the estuary and fishing in that zone. Yeah, no, I have, uh, I fished, um, you know, we fished a fair amount as a kid. We had a little John boat with a little 9.9 motor on it. And, um, boy, I mean the Susquehanna, the Shenandoah, Potomac, um, a couple of other rivers, Bull Run, but the Susquehanna, we had, you know, it was a three hour drive roughly. So we didn't do it often. You know, it would be one of those where we we drive up early Saturday morning, fish. My dad, you know, he'd do all the driving. I was I couldn't drive and um spend the night Saturday night and fish half day Sunday and drive home. But he would we would do it with he had he was lucky. A bunch of his coworkers, and in particular his boss, the owner of the the construction company he worked for, were all hunters and anglers as well. So when we'd go up to the Susquehanna, there would be maybe six or eight of us, you know, in three or four boats all going up. So that helped and lightened the load on some things, you know, just making it a little bit easier to do certain things. Um, that was always a, that was always a fun trip. I remember we did that two or three times every year, just about, and, you know, the Shenandoah was a, a little bit closer, so we do it a little bit more often. And we'd hit the upper Potomac, you know, they would quite often on like a Wednesday night or a Thursday night or even a Friday night, they, they'd all call it off early, leave at three, and everyone would go to hit the river and we'd all hit the river at the same spot, normally up at Brunswick or at White's Ferry and just have a, you know, fish until half an hour after dark and pull out and go home. And that sounds like so much fun, just having everybody there, you know, getting yeah. that experience as a kid yeah that's that's what it's all about but you know having, having the ability to feed that experience as a kid too that's that's a really big deal but that that's super cool i've i've never really heard anybody talk about that area in that context you know you'll hear people like oh yeah i live in virginia i fish a few of these places or i live in maryland and i fish over here but nobody ever really yeah. goes into that breakdown because the potomac's a big river you know it's a, it's a oh, pretty, it's huge yeah it's a massive river and nobody really it, it, it always makes me think of like, you know, our rivers in the West because it's so big. If you've never seen it, it it's, it's a giant river. Well, and remember the Shenandoah flows into it. Yeah. And that's a big river Harpers too. Ferry, right. And the Shenandoah yeah. is, you know, 30 or 40 miles long as the main stem. And then it forks into two forks, the North Fork and the South Fork, which have another, I don't know, 20 or 30 miles of water on them. Yeah. So it's a, it's a huge drainage. And then, if you go up, I fished its headwaters uh, up above John, was it John Randolph Dam, or I think that's the name of the dam, um, but way up in West Virginia and stuff. I fished all the way up in there because so my mom's from West Virginia. I've gone up there as well, and there's some good brook trout fishing up through there. Wow. So, dude, you know. what's what's been uh, what's been one of your favorite places to fish? Well, only because I just got back from New Zealand. It's, <laughs> let me just say, that is a very special place. Uh, 
if I, I fished in Chile, I fished in the UK and Portugal for trout, um, all over the Rockies, Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, um, Oregon, Wyoming, nothing compares to New Zealand. Absolutely nothing. Average size fish is massive. Um, I mean, just on a different scale. And then for the most part, you don't even cast until you see them. Like it's pure stalking. Um, it's all, it's, I call it trout hunting. You're, you hunt the trout there. Um, but they're not afraid of you. They don't have any predators. Remember, the only native mammal to New Zealand was a little bitty uh, bat. So they don't have any predators. There's some eels in the water, but if the, as long as the trout's healthy, the eel can't get them. I mean, the eels are huge. They're like three or four feet long, but a healthy trout can easily swim away from it. Um, and it's, so they, they don't, they're not in underneath the tree tight to the cover or, or six feet down in the riffle or, no, they're, they're sitting in ankle deep water off the side feeding because they can. They're not worried about ospreys. They don't have any, they have no overhead predation, none. So wow. it, it's, that makes it a little bit easier to find them, but they're still not terribly easy to cast, catch. So, because they are four, five, six, eight, nine, ten 10 pound trout, they're not stupid, you know, so. That was one place. The other place that's in my blood right now a lot is the Yucatan for snook. I like snook. They're like giant smallmouth bass. And uh, not many people fish for them down there, which I'm perfectly fine with because they are, I don't want to say they're easy because they aren't, but they, they get way less pressure than Southwest Florida or the Everglades. So they're they're a little bit easier to catch. The, the problem down there is, is I don't know why I think they have, because the water's cl more clear, they have much better vision. And at 30 pound test fluoro, you can, they'll strike it the fly just about every time, you know, if you've done everything right. At 40 pound, you get about half your strikes. At 50 pound, they come and look at your fly and never eat it. But with a 30 pound down there, you land about half of what you hook. So you lose a lot of flies, you lose a lot of fish. Um, you're in tight next to the mangoes or tight next to some, some deadfalls in the water. And if, if a 15 or 20 pound snook decides he wants to go three feet that direction, you're really not going to stop him most of the time <laughs> with only 30 pound test. He's, he's just going to, you know, abrade right through it or his gill covers are just going to cut right through that if he turns just right. So, but it's, it's super fun because it's all sight fishing for him. Dude, I've, I want to get out on the coast for some reds sometime soon because I've never fished for redfish. Well, do you uh, want, are you looking for small ones, big ones? Where, it, do you want to sight fish any, to them? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, honestly, like any fish that wants to eat in, in the salt, I'd be happy with. I've never fished. I fished saltwater once when I was really young, but I've never been able to experience as an actual angler with knowledge under my belt. Well, just so you know, the, the East Coast here in the summertime, we get the summer big boys that normally winter down in Louisiana and stuff. Um, last summer, a guy that I tie flies for the Chesapeake has a pending line class record on one of my flies still, 40 something odd pounds out of the bay. So you can get them there. You can get, I, Off of North Carolina, I have a, people that catch like 30 pounders 
all summer and fall. Like they're just there relatively every day. So if you're looking Dude, for I'm... a big one, that, you know, and you don't want to go to Louisiana because Louisiana is it's sight fishing, but it's it's commando sight fishing. It's like, oh shit, there's one 15 feet right there. And you've just got to like flop a cast over because you didn't see it in time. And you just got to do something to get it, you know, <laughs> and hope and hope he doesn't see it and spook and because they're really hard to see there. And that that water's not the cleanest when I've been there to fish it, at least. So, dude, so um, you tie Dave Whitlock's flies. I do. I tie a lot of his flies. They're, so they're horribly effective. Um, <laughs> and he was he was kind enough and nice enough to spend the time to teach me how to tie them. Um, as opposed to, you know, a lot of people just learned on their own and, you know, either figured some things out or whatever. Um, he decided to take me under his tutelage a little bit. And, you know, I would go to his place in Oklahoma and spend a week with him. And we would, I would just sit there and he would show me how to tie a fly. I'd write down this. I have huge numbers of pages of notes of literally step-by-step step, eight, eight pieces of this, two pieces of this, you know, tied in with zap, not tied in with zap, tie this in with flex cement, you know, down to like that level of detail, because, you know, he believes that different adhesives offer different advantages in different places. Um, so soft, flexible materials, need a soft, flexible adhesive. Uh, you can use a hard uh, adhesive in when you have a rigid material. Um, so, you know, we all know he was a huge fan of Zap, which I'm not gonna lie, I always thought he got paid for it. He's never gotten, he never got a dime from him. Never a dime. Um, I always thought he was like a paid sponsor or something. Um, but then uh, I also was like, you know, that's, that's kind of BS, like, no way, that's all going to work. And, like, I have some prepped here, I think. Hold on. Yeah, like, this stupid, I don't want to call it stupid anymore, but this hard mono foundation that he does, it is unbelievable what it does to flies. I tie it with, all my deer hair flies now have that as a foundation. Lou Tabery snake fly, it's a popular striper fly up here in the Northeast. Um, I tie that. One, I use that for it. Um, you know, a lot of his underwater and even some of his topwater stuff that are like trout flies. Some of it, all of his stonefly nymphs, his hoppers, um, his near enough crayfish, near enough sculpins, all that stuff had that foundation. And I've started adding it to mine. Just makes your flies so much more durable. It increases the area that you can bond. First of all, the bond that you have to the hook is just incredible. And then the amount of bond you can get elsewhere is fantastic. Um, outside of just thread tension, like thread tension is super important and it, you know, glue won't fix poor thread tension. But if you have the right thread tension and use the right adhesive in the right place at the right time, you know, it's, it's not inconceivable to have flies last 100 fish. Um, and John, I'll show you this at the show. I have one here. I at the beginning of every show, I always tie up six or eight clouser minnows. And I give them to people all throughout the show and say, break those eyes. 
and it's like if the show is a two-day show it's not until sunday after lunch that they finally break the first one and i mean people sit there and literally you can see the whites of their fingernails trying to bend the hook and they can't get it they can't get the eyes to spin um and it's it's all thanks to dave teaching me how to build that foundation properly it's unbelievable what it does um, i i have a question for you because i mean being a jig tire looking at uh durability of materials and everything else and, and you're you're bringing up some really fantastic you know stuff jigs too man yeah yeah you got you got the uh the cool yeah. is that uh marabou uh no that's saddle bucktail some flashaboo and some uh, peacock girl but it's for uh it's to imitate bunker or minhaden around here so so my question okay so Mike and Striper's got a mouth; they'll just shred everything. I mean, they're 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 mean fish, and yeah. uh, um, brand of the adhesives that you're using. Now I know that there's certain brands that do certain things and and all of that, yeah. but do you have like a go-to brand for your adhesives? Like, uh, uh, yes. I'll throw mine out there. I use Loom, that, and, and that's what I've used. But well, that's UV, I, right? Yes. Are you are you using their uh, water-based head cement as well? Yes. Okay. So um, by all means, continue to use Loon. I, I don't have many bad things to say about them or, or any really. I don't use their stuff anymore. I still love their payette and their Stanley's Ice Off paste though. Um, that's what I do buy from them. But no, uh, for my UV resin, uh, I don't use UV. Uh, I know that it the, the UV lights are supposed to be safe, but I don't feel that they are. Um, I'm just, you know, my, my dad's had skin, you know, cancers, things removed and. Oh, totally understandable. Well, and you know, when we go fishing, we wear sun gloves and UV shirts and buffs and hats, and I don't want to put a UV torch that close to my hand. So I use, um, the stuff called tough lie, okay. which cures using blue light. And it's the same thing that we get as fillings in our teeth. Uh, the story I've been told from the. The, the guy who owns the company now, there's two periodontists that said, what about if we were to use this stuff instead of epoxy on our flies? So it's the same light that they use in your in your mouth. It's got a little shield on it. It's got I that little right amber here. colored shield. Yeah, yeah. It's the yeah, same one they use one. at the dentist. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and it comes in two viscosities, uh, you know, thick and a thin, they call it core and finish. And then there's a flexible version of it as well. Um, and then, but the, the, I like it. It's much harder than any of the other ones. It dries, uh, you know, pretty quick. It takes about 10 seconds with that, maybe 15, um, which is a little longer than most, but it's, it does, you know, no, nobody's ever had trouble with, um, you know, having an allergic reaction to it. Um, you know, like I know, is it Raid Zap or? One of them, solar res. A lot of people are allergic to it, mm -hmm. so um, that's what I use for my UV stuff. Um, and then uh, for my cyanoacrylates, I do believe Zapagap is the best. Um, I know Crazy Glue and Super Glue are not waterproof. Um, and then I do have Softex as well on my desk. I have Dave's Flexment in both a thin and a thick version that I essentially make myself by 
you know, opening the bottle cap and letting it thicken out, you know, evaporate some to get thicker. Um, then I have head cement as well, which is a uh, semi-gloss lacquer. I learned that from AK Best's book. Head cement is nothing more than lacquer. Okay. So I bought it by the court and it lasts me, I don't know, six years at a time for a quart for whatever it is, eight bucks. Um, and I just keep refilling this thing. Um, then uh, I everybody's got to have Sally Hansen's hard as nails, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I swipe my daughters. Yeah. And then uh, the only other thing I'll say that you need is uh, either Goop or Zappa Goop or E6000. You need that, that flexible rubber cement, whatever brand you prefer. Um, I mean, I'm a, a Goop or a Zappa Goop. E6000 doesn't dry as clear for me. It holds better, though. I will say that, but it's not as clear. Um, I use uh, I use clear Gorilla Glue. Yeah, I don't know. I know that a lot of people like Gorilla Glue. I I have zero uh, experience with it. I I have a couple of friends that have tried their thirty minute epoxy. It browns over time, unlike some of the other brands. And then uh, I also know that their their super glue, their cyanoacrylate, is not waterproof. If you leave it in water long enough, the the bond will fail. So, um, the only other thing I I'll say that's important to have in your tying area are solvents because we are we're going to spill this stuff folks so you need to have lacquer thinner you need to have xylene to clean up your flexible cements your soft hex and your fleximent you need to have acetone to clean up your super glue and you need rubbing alcohol as well because it just cleans just about everything else so i have i have all of those within uh, two of them i have to stand up to reach but all the other ones i can reach from right here at my tying desk you got to have them. Well, uh, I'm a huge fan of liquid fusion. What, what, what's your what's your take on? I, you know, what? I I don't need to use it, so I haven't. I know there's a lot of people that are allergic to super glues, so that's why they use it. I know um, uh, that my British friend uh, Rue, he can't he can't do it. Not Rue. Um, oh, I forget the gentleman's name. Anyways, I, he can't do it. Maybe it is Rupert Harvey. Yeah, Rupert Harvey. He's allergic to a super glue, so he can't use it. He has to use liquid fusion. I'm sure it's a fine glue. I just, I don't need to use it, so I don't. Um, is it hard or soft? When Dude, it um, when it, it's a very flexible, hard cure. Um, I really enjoy it. I, yeah. I wouldn't say, um, I wish I had a fly here to show you. I really love it for bucktail work because it really yeah. does soak in all those fibers. It makes it very, I just love it. Yeah. love it for pike and musky bugs. Yeah. Well, I would try to start playing with some solvents to be able to thin it out. Because sometimes like I have, like this one is my thin fleximent right here. I, I'm, I'm tying hollow flies today. And every time, every step along the way, I use the thin stuff in there to make sure it soaks down through the wraps and stuff. And then when I get to the front of the bucktail, I'll put a thicker one on as I'm tying, you know, my thread dam in front of that hollow tie. Um, and I'll wrap through it. But it's like having different viscosities will will change how how and where you can use it and how it soaks into your thread and into the material as well. So you'll have to look at how to thin it. You might, I don't know if xylene would work or not, but you can give it a shot. I don't know, but we can definitely do this at uh, Salva. 
<laughs> yeah. I, well, I can't, experiment. I can't because I'm, I'm flying, so I can't bring any of my solvents uh, like that. So, well, I'm sure there's a Home Depot or something for yeah. science. Oh, listen, know. I mean, I buy it at the, the liquor store or the hardware store. I mean, this is <laughs> it's by the court, right? And my lacquer thinner sitting right next to it. Like I said, I can reach all but two. The lacquer thinner, I'd have to stand up. Same with the lacquer. Because it that, I will say, Headsman is the least used product that I use. I really only use it on dry flies now. And that's just because it's kind of traditional and or like I have some people that still want me to tie traditional wet flies. Like I've got an order for some uh, lead wing coachmen, some gold ribbed hairs, uh, hairs ear wet flies. Um, what was the other one? It was another one that I hadn't, I hadn't had anybody order in, or even ask me for in probably 10 or 15 years. So it was another one of those old ones like that. So for that, I still use lacquer. Um, what I have to find out is if he wants me to paint the head black or not, still black lacquer. I hope not, but if he does, I will. <laughs> yeah. It's not free, so. <laughs> Alan, dude, so what have you got coming down the pipeline um, for yourself? You know, I wish I could say something other than this trigger finger, but I did something to it yesterday and it's coming back, unfortunately. I thought it was gone but it's, I think it's back, but, um, uh, you know, nothing. <laughs> I'm just, I just sit here and I tie flies man. uh, I've got, uh, you know, I've got the two headed trout dinner in Roscoe in a couple of weeks, um, fishing the white for the first time after the sow bug. That's going to be nice, for dude. I, I will be there also. Uh, really? Yeah. For a couple of days after. Uh, not a couple of days, but uh, I'll be there Sunday. Okay. Yeah, I think Sunday I've got to help Emily get back, but um, then I'm coming back on probably like, I think it's Wednesday. Oh, dude, you're going to love that. No, I'm coming back Tuesday, I think. But anyway, yeah, I'm fishing and I'm psyched. Uh, Emily helped me get on the boat with Chad Johnson. So I'm, I'm really psyched. Oh, about no that. shit, dude. Yeah. Yeah, I'm super psyched about getting on his boat. Like, that's going to be special. Um, because he knows the river really well, so you're gonna you're gonna have a hell of a time. Yeah, yeah. And I met him last year after the sow bug. Um, I went over to uh, some, a friend's house that I met at the show where Dave and Emily were, and I had to. Dave and Emily were supposed to go fishing that day, and they had asked me to bring some flies for them to fish with. Well, kind of. Dave forgot to bring some, so at the show he asked me if I would tie the ones that I was tying at the show last year for him. So I stayed up that Saturday night and tied him some. And uh, I brought him over Sunday morning. And there was this nice guy sitting on the couch having coffee, talking to him. And they decided not to go fishing. So they invited me to sit down and chat. Half an hour later, you know, we, it, we introduced our names. It is, he just said, my name's Chad. Didn't know who he was. I had never met him or seen him before. Nicest young man in, the, in this world I'd ever met. Just super polite and courteous. And then, you know, I got up to leave and I think I went to Dally's next or something and uh, was saying, you know, I met, you know, where I was and like, oh, that was Chad Johnson. I'm like, oh, really? like, I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> I just spent an hour with the guy. I didn't know who he was, really. I just thought he was a nice kid named Chad. You know, 
very nice man. So that's going to be fun. Um, yeah, I don't know. I started helping out a little bit more last year with Project Healing Waters around here too. We have a very active chapter here in Manhattan. Um, and out of weird luck, they do their casting in Central Park, two blocks from my house. So the casting is super easy for me to get to and help with. And it's helping me cast as well because it's it's one thing to be able to know how to cast. It's another thing to try to explain it to somebody. And it makes you stop and think about what you're doing in the cast to explain it better. And uh, I've also gone back and rewatched, you know, Lefty Crate casting instruction videos, etc., to try to become a better instructor at it. And that's been an interesting transition to learn. Because it's it's one thing when you're teaching your dad or your buddy or you know something like that. This is, you know. A whole different thing when the guy's, you know, 75 year old Vietnam vet. So, yeah. Well, I think that's a really cool thing that you're able to go out and, and uh, share that experience. Uh, the thing, the thing that is kind of going through my mind right now is that you're doing this in one of the largest cities in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it blows my mind. I, you know, you think of people that are, you know, really into, um, that, that want to get into fly fishing or fishing in general. And, and you don't necessarily equate New York city to that. That's, that's the one thing. And I agree, but there is fantastic fly fishing in and around New York. Yeah. The Harbor has fantastic striped bass fishing. Like I always show people, I have a picture of me holding about a 20 pound striper and you can see the Verrazano bridge in the background. Like it, it's fantastic. And it's going to start two weeks like late March is when it they start like you can start getting them pretty good all the way through early June they're just stacked all the way around from Jamaica Bay Raritan Bay up and down Jersey Jersey's coast like Long Island it's fantastic but my, my curious my curiosity is is you know what does what does it take to navigate through that heavy urban environment to get to that oh um uber Uber. <laughs> That's what I do. Uh, yeah. No, I, I typically, because it's so early in the morning when I go, you know, my guide likes me to be out there at whatever, half an hour, 45 minutes before sunrise. Um, I'll take an Uber there in the morning and I'll take the subway home. I don't like taking the subway in the middle of the night. That's so wild. <laughs> um, but the subways, you know, the crazy thing, the subway's faster. Oh yeah. Than the, than the car, but it's, you know, it's, I'm not going on the subway at two in the pier at three in the morning or whatever. Just not doing it. Don't blame me. Chance. Yeah. So I heard there's like outstanding carp fishing at Central Park. Yeah, in Harlem Mirror. There's it's actually really good pan fishing as well. And there's some decent sized bass in there. I I've only I've only seen and caught bass up to like three, three and a half pounds, but I was just on a we do the same project team was we do fly tying on Monday nights. And this Monday night. One of the gentlemen was saying his son caught a five pounder there not too long ago. Like five, and he said like five pounds, seven ounces or something like that. Oh, that's wow. a good fish, dude. That's a really Isn't good it? fish. Especially for a northern fish. Like it's yeah. one thing to have them down in Virginia. Like five pounders were more common the further south you go, right? You know, it's cold up here. Like they don't have a long growing season. Mm -hmm. So it was below freezing today. So that's a that's a really healthy fish for this far up. Yeah, no kidding. 
For sure. But, you know, we were talking about bluegill earlier, and we, we always thought that they were kind of easy. And, and I remember, Brian, you said that they can, sometimes they strike really, and it's not easy to catch them. I had a whole new found respect for bluegill when I started. I lived in Chicago for 14 years. I ice fished for them the last four or five years I lived out there. And it's easy to catch a four and five inch bluegill through the ice. But once you learn how to do it and where to do it, you can target 10 inch bluegill through the ice. Really? And those are the most finicky fish I've ever seen. Size 14 tungsten jigs. So that's a small hook. We would put five spikes, which are maggots that are alive on it. You can't see the hook point at all. It's completely covered up. We're using two or three pound test fluorocarbon. And they would come up. Those maggots are still sitting there wiggling on the hook like this, you know, going back. They would come up, you know, be an inch away from it and literally just back off of it. You're like, that's live bait still wiggling. Like, what did they see that they didn't like? but they knew something was wrong. And that's when I had a whole new respect for bluegill and realized it's easy to catch the little guys, which is what we always do with our fly rods, except for that, you know, 10 days in the spring when they're on the beds. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes in the fall, there's that weird week where I, I used to find them in the fall as well, up in Wisconsin and Illinois. Um, I don't know if it was, there was a transition period there. It was normally at the beginning of October and I could find them in, I could do pretty well on like eight, nine inch bluegill in a lake or a pond. I typically fish ponds, mm -hmm. um, but so I just wanted to bring that up. Like I, it just, and then, oh, and then John, you asked me what else is going on. I have the, the Maryland fly fishing and collectible tackle show this weekend as well. Nice. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I think if I have another show that I'm doing, just salvo that one. And then I do the Virginia show, the Texas show, and then this shirt, the International Fly Tying Symposium. That's the, that's, this is on par with the salvo in terms of being a good tire show. This one has about 70 or 80 tires that show up, but it also has some people there selling stuff like Bill Keogh shows up and has a whole display of hackle. So, you know, you can go over and handpick some good hackle and, stuff like that. You know, the guys from, uh, and I bought a pair, not in love with them. The guys from Copter Scissors were there. So I bought a pair of Copter Scissors. I didn't like them, but I'll donate them to somebody in my Project Healing Waters class here at some point. I don't know if you guys have tried these Reno meds. These things are fantastic. So I've heard that the FS1 and FS2s are trash but I've heard that everything else is pretty good and that's because of the serrated blades. Correct. And I, that's funny you say that. I only use serrated blade scissors. I don't understand why you wouldn't. I don't understand the straight edge scissor blade. Like it just, you put stuff in, you can watch it slide out. I don't care how sharp they are. The tension will grab it without that serration. Um, so, and if I could still get them, which I can't, my favorite scissors of all time are these German wasses. Chris Helm used to promote them. And then I think Wapsie used to sell them as well as their deer hair scissors. And when I say I bought the last ones that she had,
<laughs> These are the last ones she had. <laughs> wow. Well, you definitely um, stocked up. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to need oh no. more for a while. Yeah, I got about a year. That's I can only get about, I get about three months out of a pair of scissors. I wish I got longer, but I don't. So those ones aren't sharpenable? No, they're all serrated. Serrated, yeah. Yeah. And even the unserrated ones, I've I've gone to hairstylists and ha had them use their scissor sharpeners sharpen them, and it doesn't work. Not for like trout type tips. Like it might work if you're. It wouldn't work for deer hair bugs or anything either. So yeah, no, I don't. I don't know anybody that can sharpen small scissors. Yeah, I didn't know if there was a way. If there's somebody out there in the wide world that was like, hey, I can resharpen scissors, you know, and there are because. Ladies that use hairstyles, they can resharpen their scissors, but those are, you know, six, seven, eight inch long. Yeah, blades. they're they're a big blade. You're talking about a blade yeah. that's an inch. I mean, these Renovent scissors, these blades are, Christ. Three quarters of an inch. Yep. Yeah. And the sharp part is, yeah, three quarters of an inch. The entire, from the hinge up is an inch. The, the blade is three quarters. But yeah, um, you're right. I've been doing homework. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love them. I have to say, like, you know, when I found out she was running, like she wasn't going to import the Wasa scissors from Germany anymore, I was like, oh, I'll take everything you have. And she sent them to me. And then, then Phil from Renomed reached out to me and I was like, yeah, I'll give him a shot. And um, he sent me one pair of scissors and I bought two. Um, and oof, like the only reason these Wasas have lasted me so long is because I've been using these for like three quarters of my time. And every time I travel, this is what I take. And I, I'm not lying. This is the first pair of scissors I've ever had in my life that have lasted me more than six months. And it's crazy. But I, I am, I, I'm a firm believer in once your scissors start, start not doing something, get rid of them. Don't screw around. Or, or they become your wire scissors. <laughs> oh no, I, that's what straight edge razor blades are for. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Straight edge razor blades, or if it's really strong wire, that's what you have these for. Right? I've got side cutters I use for yeah, like that's what these are. Yeah. 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 If it's strong enough wire that I can't, you know, helicopter or you know, but if it's copper wire or something, I'll either helicopter it off or um what I quite often do, you know, if it's a rib or something like that on a say a pheasant sail or something. When I get to the spot where most people would normally tie it off, I'll do one full turn of wire, tie it off with my thread three or four times, and then I'll take and I'll cut, I'll cut it with the, the wire or with the razor blade. So I never considered I, using a razor blade to cut wire with. Yeah, straight edge, not the soft yeah. ones. You gotta use, I have the soft ones too. You gotta have both. Do you, do you always trim in hand when you do deer hair or do you use uh do you use like a buck shear or anything like that no i do it in i hold the hook in my left hand and trim with scissors and dave wanted me to not trim even i used to always trim the belly with the razor blade yeah and then go in and trim with the scissors afterwards and he wanted me to start he, did, he said, I don't really care, but I trim my bellies with my scissors. So for all of the flies that are his, 
I started using the scissors for the belly as well. And now that's just, I've gotten into the habit. That's just what I do for every of them, all of them now. So I've, I've got one more question because I, I, I don't want to keep you all night, dude. Oh, so I'm just going to uh, stay up and tie anyway. So, <laughs> so <clears throat> you're one of the few people that I believe can tie a, an actual quality beast fly. Um, was that just all from Bob Pop's book or did you have some mentorship with that? Um both so the idea came to me because i was sitting here going hey you know i didn't at five years ago i didn't see a lot of people tying them on instagram or facebook and i knew that they were a popular fly here on the northeast for stripers and i knew the striper fishing here in the northeast is almost as popular as the trout fishing in the catskills almost um, but there's probably more money spent on it because in the catskills you can go fishing by yourself but Striper, you either have to have a boat or you're hiring a guide. Like there's some from shore, but not, you know, not a tremendous amount. Um, so I was like, so I wanted to figure it out. And one of my old friends, and he's helped me out in this business a bunch, is Scott from the Bears Den. And if you guys don't know him, you should. Um, he's a wonderfully nice guy. Um, and he's been doing this for, I don't know approaching 30 years, probably. Um, he's owned a fly shop for 30 years. Um, he took over his father's shop when his father wanted to step down and uh, he's just run away with it. It's, you know, double, tripled in size. He has his own uh, show in the winter time now. Um, anyways, uh, I was like, Scott, I want to sell, I know you do the stuff with, you know, Dave Nelson, he'll send you up and, you know, Skoke will send you up some flies and say, hey, this is what I got for the month. You can sell them. It's like, I want to do that with you too. And I want to do hollow flies. I was like, all right, man, let's do it. Send me some samples. So I tied some up and uh, looking back at the photos that I sent him, they were garbage. And he goes, let me, um, let me send these over to, to Bobby and have him look at them. So he was nice enough to literally send my photos to Bob and Bob would write an email back with the critique. And that's how these flies got good is by Bob being a, uh, very respectful, very kind about it, but being very harsh in his criticism about being, hey, that's that's not it, that's not it, that's not it. And, um, you know, it, it took a while. And then the other thing is, is it, there's a learning curve with those flies in that to some degree, if you're gonna tie a, anything over about 10 inches, you have to be using unicorn hair. You've gotta be using bucktail that's five inches or so. And that's just, there's not a lot of it. There just isn't, right? Um, but you know, like here, I just tied some of these. Where are they? This somebody wanted some five-inch hollows um, that are going to get down deep. So here's one, right? It's the little hollow. It's not big. I mean, my hand's nine inches, right? So it's it's a little hollow fly. So if you were to tie this with five-inch hair, it wouldn't work. You have to learn that if you're tying this size fly, like all these stacks in here are only three inches long. Three and a half inch tail and all the other pieces are three inches. So you have to start figuring out um, what the right length is to get the profile and the shape you need. And then 
the whole secret to that fly is, is to tie it as sparsely as I did there, because when those things start moving like this in the water, it looks solid, even though it isn't. I've thrown that fly with my five weight, and it's a five-inch streamer. You can't throw a, throw a five-inch woolly bugger or a five-inch deceiver with your five weight, and you're going to throw your shoulder out, right? So that's that was what took me a long, long time was figuring out, you know, the the right ratio of fiber length for a seven inch, a five inch fly, a seven inch fly, a nine inch fly, 11 and 13. Cause that, those are the sizes that I tie. Um, you know, like here's a, here's one I tied for the Seychelles. It's a big hollow with some ostrotrol coming out the back, but it's black and purple. It's a bulkhead, but it's, they wanted, they needed to be able to cast in like a 30 mile an hour wind. Cause when they're there, as long as it's not gale force, they're going fishing. Right, because a lot of their fishing is waiting, so they don't care. They're in the surf. Who cares? So I had to I had to figure out how to tie something for them that they could cast. So I had to be able to put a lot less into it and still have that nice. I don't know if you can see the shape there, a nice yeah. big shape. But I needed a really strong tail kick form. So a lot of it's also working with somebody who can fish that fly in front of the fish for you. So my my Seychelles flies, I've had couple of anglers come up and like work with me to try to figure out how to do something like this popper i don't know if you got i got to show you this at the show did i show you this one yeah and then you you told me how you weighted it yeah because it was i don't think i have them handy but um a weight i'm trying to think where it was that i read this I don't remember, but anyways, it when oh, it was Jeff White that said this. If, if you ever have trouble casting into the into the wind, throw some weight onto your fly. Put a bead onto it. Throw get some weight into it because now you have momentum going. And uh, these big GT poppers with that one inch foam flat face, they never casted well. I tried, you know, I would take them down to the Florida with me and practice with my guides eleven weight, and I I couldn't get them to go out hardly. They would go two thirds of the way and just fall, you know, like dump on you. And like the rest of the cast was, you know, a loop this tight, you know, a, a foot and a half loop, boom, and just die. So it took me a while of working with people, uh, four inches of 30,000 lead in there. And now the thing casts like a, a bullet into the wind. And it still floats. You know, you're not going to, it's an inch foam. You're, it's going to take a lot to get that to pull down, but. It made a big difference. So for sure. That's that's the kind of things that um I love it. That's what I say is the difference between me and a lot of other tires is a I don't I don't sell flies that I haven't fished or worked with somebody to get better. Like I have some guides down in Florida that help me develop flies as well. Um, you know, you know, we need this longer tail, shorter tail, more bulk, less bulk, that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't. I don't sell flies that I haven't fished and I haven't figured out how to to make work properly. Um, that's just one of the things I won't do. Uh, that's why I don't like, I know you're in the Pacific Northwest there. I don't do salmon, steelhead, none of the spay flies, none of that stuff. I I don't know it. Like it, it would, besides being disingenuous, I, I don't know how to do it. Um, so I'm not gonna sit there and look like a fool and and try to sell somebody you know, same, I don't do game changers. 
I know you guys just had Adam on. I just listened to his podcast the other day. I have people ask me for game changers all the time. I, I send them up, hey, give this guy a call. Or, um, you know, if, if there's another fly that's more appropriate for somebody else to tie, I tell them to go get it from that other person. Um, often, in fact, because um, it's not my specialty. It's not my forte. It's not what I can do and be willing to put my name on it. Um, so. Well, I think that's awesome, though, man. Yeah. Listen, it, you have to know, stay in your lanes. You got to know what you're doing. You got to be able to, like, I will seriously put any of my flies up, especially in terms of durability against anybody's, and look them square in the face and say, I think my flies are going to be more durable than yours. Um, I use adhesives in every fly. There's not a single fly I tie that doesn't have something in it. Um, and, you know, I, I I know I I keep touting Zappagap, but man, I'm finding more and more uses for that stuff just as Dave did. It well, and I shouldn't say I am. I'm I'm using the the techniques that he taught me on other flies, and I'm just being blown away by how effective it is. It's just incredible. Um, he has a whole DVD on it where he, he goes over how to do the line leader connection and his backing and how to splice a fly line and all of that stuff. Then at the end of that same DVD, he goes into some fly tying stuff. Um, you know, the way, like, here's a little bonefish fly. I don't know if you guys will be able to see that well, but there's a weed guard there, right? I don't know if you guys can see that yeah. very well. But that um, that's tied in with Dave's technique for a mono weed guard. So is that one. So is that one. What else? I'm sure I've got other ones here. Um, so. I've, I've switched all of my clouses for my personal fishing, and I try to talk all of my people that buy flies from me into getting clousers tied this way. So that looks like a regular clouser. This is a little two and a quarter inch one, right? So it's small, but um, I tied on a bend back hook. So you can see there's a little bend in that hook. Then the other thing is after I fill in the, the gap on those eyes with a uh, you know, I fill in with the tough fly. The next thing I do, let me get that bucktail out of the way. I put a weed guard on that there as well. And I can't tell you the number of times I developed this fly for myself for fishing down in the Yucatan because I, I there's this one guy to go with. He's got this little freshwater creek. We go up and we catch pargo in it. And I take my five weight. So I need a small clouser to throw two inches long, but I have to throw it this close to the tree. If I'm that far out, the in, or there's a, a limestone drop, like with an undercut, if I don't get it right there, the, the snappers won't come out. But I've caught like two and a half, three pound snappers all day long. And then every now and then I'll get like a five or six pounder on my five weight. I don't know how he doesn't break my five weight. It's, it's so close, I think every time, but it's so much fun because it's, 50 fish in three hours. It's like pan fishing, but if I, this fly with all of this stuff, I can purposely, and I do it every time, I throw it a foot into the mangroves every time, and it comes out every time. Sure. And that's, um, it's one of the, the lessons Dave taught me very early on. In fact, it was the, the very first or second day with the how you want to look at it 
the first day I go for my ever lesson of, Alan, I want you to come out and learn my legacy of flies. All right, Dave, I'll come, you know, Emily, and I'll come out and, you know, I drove out and uh, I get there and the first day, Dave's just sitting there. We chat for the first two hours in his studio. We're just talking and it's wonderful. And then we sit down, he shows me the fox squirrel nymph. Then it's, you know, we, we go our separate ways for dinner. I come back the next morning and I knock on the door and it was like, Alan, come in and sit down and talk with me. And uh, she goes, we're sitting in front of, they have a huge fish tank and we're sitting in the rocking chairs. She goes, yesterday you said something that really upset Dave. And I said, my, my, she said, my face went beet red. I started sweating right away. I was like, oh my God, on the first day I screwed this whole thing up. What did I say? said, yesterday, you, Dave asked you what you thought of weed guards. And you said, and you said something that upset him. I was like, oh yeah, I called them fish prevention devices. She goes, Dave's going to show you a lot of things that are very different. We need you to keep a very open mind to what he's going to be teaching you. I said, okay, yeah. Um, I, you know, I apologize profusely. Anyways, 20 minutes later, after she finally made me feel okay again, because Emily's amazing like that. Um, she says, so Dave wants you to do something different today. She handed me a box of flies that were his flies. And one of them in particular was this pattern. This is his ultralight air jet minnow. Um, and it, you can see it's got some weed guards there, two of them. She goes, we want you to go fish the, the creek next door, which is a little smallmouth creek in Oklahoma, a little limestone one. Um, but your first 30 casts, you have to throw this fly three feet onto the bank. I said, okay, I'll do it. And in my head, I thought, fine, I'll go get it. Like, if that's what you want me to do. Um, and that's when I learned. I didn't have to go get this fly once all day. I didn't miss a fish all day. It comes, it comes from putting them on properly, knowing how to put them on properly, and, you know, trimming them properly. Um, so let me see if I, I don't know if we'll be able to show you this. Mm-hmm. See how those weed guards are just still short of the hook point? Yep. Yeah. They, so they can never be long enough to actually hit, go between the fish's mouth and the hook point. That's one of the most important things. But if you look, they're still proud of the hook point there, right? They're still proud. They're still above the hook point. The next thing is the mono only has to be strong enough to deflect the weight of the fly. That's all you're doing. So it's the flaw, the weight of the fly, not this, it's to some degree, it's not the size of the fly, it's the weight that matters. So this near enough crayfish with these medium-sized lead eyes, actually, those might even be large. I have you know two weed guards and they're um, you know, they're much stronger than this. This is two pieces of 12-pound mason. Like it's this thing weighs nothing. I think I had you throw this one in your hand too, Joe, didn't I? Yeah. It's just it's polystyrene. It weighs nothing. He developed this so he could fish bass poppers with his five weight. Because later in life, he couldn't throw a seven or eight weight all day. Um, whereas, you know, like this little deer hair bug, because it's going to absorb a crap load of water, it needs a stronger weed guard, right? So that's the thing that it, it took me a while to learn that with those flies. Because I, um, I tied a bunch of these up for last summer on the upper Wisconsin River where I was going. And uh, man, I had so many fish that I missed. 
they'd come up, they'd blow up on it, and I'd, I'd do, I was strip setting and everything. I was, I hooked like one out of 10. And after I missed like 10, I cut it off. It's like, I'm going with different flies. Couldn't figure it out. And then I went back and talked to him about it. And he goes, well, just run your finger right here. And he goes, if you're not hitting that hook point eight out of 10 times, they're too stiff. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm not. And he goes, well, you don't have to take that apart. You just, because the man knew everything. All you do is you come in here right there and just crimp that the mono just a little bit to weaken it. And that weakened it just enough to fix that one. Although this is a newer one, but like the old ones that I had tied with 20 pound. It was so interesting. He taught me a lot. He was a very special man. Yeah. Well, Dave, we're past our hour here, you know, yeah. uh, but didn't want to miss out on that cool story to uh, yeah. let all of our listeners hear about. But, you know, uh, it, it's always fun to hear that, you know, the people that influence us, the people that help us, the people that help us to get there. That's always a really big deal, you know, because that's how we get to where we are and to our notoriety is by the people we learn from and do that apprentice, yes. so to speak through. And so definitely didn't want to miss that, but nonetheless, we're, we're at the end of it here, Alan. And uh, I just wanted to say, thank you so much for coming on, talking to us. We talked a lot of technical stuff. We talked a lot of broad based stuff, you know, we knew, yeah. We now know, I know a lot more about you and where you're at. And just, it gives yeah. me a whole new appreciation for a, a lot of the different uh, technical facets of the tying. So thank you yeah. so much for being on. Well, thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate it. And if you guys are ever in New York, let me know. We'll grab a beer somewhere. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I know John and I will have some in a week and a half there at Salbud somewhere. Yeah, dude, we'll, we'll do something. <laughs> we'll, find, we'll figure it out somehow. No. Um, Alan yeah. Davis, really, thanks so much for coming on, man. And yeah, I just we we really do appreciate it. And yeah, it's a, we didn't even really get to talk about half the stuff I wanted to, so we'll have to do it again someday. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but no, it's um, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate it, guys. Dude, pleasure was ours. Uh, Brian, you want me to see us out here? Yeah, I will. So yeah. everybody. All right, you you want to do it, John? Oh no, go ahead. Okay, all right, <laughs> everybody. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to check out our sponsors: CD Fishing USA, Naughty Tackle Sure Cure, Anatomist Fly Co, Lid Rig, Angry Rooster Fly Company, and Three One Seven Flies. Check out those fantastic sponsors. Make sure that you tell them that we sent you. And if you want to get in touch with any of us, you can get in touch with us through WorkingClassFishing.com. You also find us on Instagram. If you're seeing us on YouTube, drop a comment down below, hit the like and subscribe button. Also, if you're listening to us on Spotify, make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify as well or Apple Podcast and anywhere uh, that you can find us. You can find Alan over at flyonthewater.com. Uh, and then you can also find him on Instagram at flyonthewater. And if you want to get, talk to him, you can get all of you, all of your questions answered on all the technical stuff we didn't talk about tonight. So once again, the, everybody, the Instagram handles fly on the underscore water. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Use that one instead. Yeah. Um, anyways, folks, thank you so much for listening. We hope everyone has a wonderful day.